Another reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, which can be found on page 1062 on your pew Bibles. In the last day, this is what Isaiah, son of Amotz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, and will settle disputes for the peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The passage we just read comes from a time of civil war. The nation of Israel had split in two, and a war broke out during this time between the north and the south. Like in the American Civil War, there were many divides between them. The north of Israel was more wealthy, the south was poorer. The north was pragmatic, the south was idealistic. The south and Israel felt the north had sold their soul for financial gain. The north felt that they could not exist without making compromises on the moral law that they agreed to. The North was agrarian, the South was mercantile. The North had greater standing in the international community. The South was nothing more than the pain in the side of great empires. Both claimed to be living out the the legitimate vision of the nation's founding. Both claimed that God was on their side. Both claimed that their war was a tragedy, but a tragedy made necessary by the behavior of the other side. Both were told they were under God's judgment. As you can see, the causes of civil war did not dramatically change between 800 BC and 1800 AD. Brother continued to fight against brother for many of the same reasons, ethnic, cultural, ideological, religious, and economic. And people continue to fight similar wars today. All of this would not have been surprising to very many people until recently. But for a short time, we thought maybe peace had been hard won by our ancestors in World Wars I and II and all that was necessary for the average person was remembering that sacrifice. Meanwhile, foreign policy experts would figure out just the right borders for every nation. They would enmesh every country in the same financial system, and we would finally achieve the end of history. But recent events in Ukraine and Gaza have begun to shatter this illusion, and can be hard to piece it back together again. The causes of war haven't really changed very much since, since ancient times. People haven't changed either. We might be richer, we might have cooler gadgets, we might have better and more effective ways of fighting wars, but we still have the instinct toward war. We still have the tendency to forget just how terrible war is when an opportunity to defeat and embarrass our enemies comes along. We still haven't figured out the problem of human nature, which is so inclined toward war and self-destruction. We now know, if we didn't already, that this is all true. War, and not peace, is the natural state of humanity without constant maintenance and effort to avoid it. 
Entropy leads toward war and not peace. Left to our own devices, we'll find reasons to kill each other, not make peace. But in this text, Isaiah describes a different solution. He says that God will provide for Israel not only the solution to this civil war, but to the entire human tragedy of war. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Weapons would be turned into crude farming implements just to get some use out of them. And the way that this would be done is that the temple where God dwells would become the center of the entire earth. Everyone would submit to the authority of God alone, and God would settle their disputes for them. All of the nations which at the time were raging against one another would excitedly walk to Jerusalem to hear what God has to say so they could walk in his paths. Now, this image is the kind of thing that sounds like a pipe dream. And it's fair to ask if any of this has actually come true. It's been 3,000 years, of course. During this season of the church year, we hope for the day when Jesus returns and set this whole, sets this whole world right, so that this beautiful vision would actually come true. But surely God doesn't expect us to just sit around and wait, to throw our hands up and pretend it hasn't been it's 3,000 years and we can't expect any of this to happen by now, does he? Now, in the person of Jesus Christ, we have already begun to see God's solution and God's promise have begun to be fulfilled here. People from every tribe and every nation go to church every week to hear from God so they can teach them his paths, just like this passage said would happen. This very church is evidence of it. And nobody would have thought that this would be the case when the little kingdom of Israel was fighting a civil war many years ago. They were on the brink of annihilation, and now their writings are among the only ones that truly survived from that time. The mountain of the Lord at Jerusalem really did become the center of the whole earth. Because at the crucifixion, the Son of God set up his kingdom here on earth. That moment became the central moment in the whole history of creation. As a result, Christians decided to bear witness to a different kind of kingdom and to a different kind of king. They recognized that the power and authority of Jesus is a completely different kind of power and authority than the ones that are backed up by violence. During the season of Christmas, Christians have this under, underappreciated and scandalous tradition which was started by three wise men. During the time of Augustus Caesar, the most powerful man of history with the might of the Roman legions backing him, the wise men recognized that the true king of kings was the tiny infant lying in a feeding trough, born to parents too poor to afford a place to stay. They brought their gifts and paid homage to Jesus because they knew who actually deserved their loyalty and who actually was in charge, even if he latched the trappings of a royal robe and crown. And all this was foreshadowing to an even more scandalous pronouncement made by Christians for centuries. And that's the scene at Calvary, where Christians see that the one that's really in charge is the one being crucified, half naked between two criminals, and crying out in agony. They see the crown of thorns they call it a real crown. They see the purple robe used to mock him and call it royalty. And they see the bloody cross and call it the throne where the true king and savior of this world was coronated. If Christians see Jesus as a different kind of king, then they see the Christian as a different kind of citizen. The citizens of this world imitate their leaders, amassing power and glory for its own sake and causing unnecessary and costly conflict. 
Now this is true on geopolitical scales as well as personal scales. You'll see this every day of your life, not just when war breaks out. It's difficult sometimes, but Christians should recognize that they serve a radically different king, and so we should imitate him instead. As subjects of the, of the king that was coronated on the cross, we recognize that the way of peace is often the way of shame. It involves giving up honor and glory and love for the good of others, just as Christ gave up the glory of heaven for the glory of the cross. We recognize that the way of justice is often less satisfying than vengeance, as we maintain the hope that our enemies will enjoy the radical change in life that we have. But ultimately, we recognize that this is the only way that's worth walking, because we have the honor of walking in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we worship. And this way affects every aspect of our lives. It isn't just something that we pull out and war breaks out. If we want to make peace in this world, we have to start by making peace in our own lives and in our own churches. We have practically no control over world governments. We have control over our families and friendships. The seeds of war are sown deep in the human heart, not in Congress or in the UN. If war is to be conquered by love, it has to begin in each of us. What this means is that we can't be satisfied when we lose important relationships because of conflicts that would be just because it would be too costly to repair them. We can't be satisfied with the church which was split thousands of times and has failed to represent the peaceable reign of Christ. We can't harbor grudges and do all we can to grow them in our hearts and then wonder how people could be possessed to kill each other. So we continue our Advent hope that Christ will finally return and set this world right. And we especially hope today for an end of the conflict that leads to unnecessary bloodshed. But this is not a passive hope, but one that ought to inspire us to action, to make peace with one another and with the world immediately around us. And in doing so, we can bear witness to what real peace looks like here on earth, and so begin to fulfill the incredible vision of swords being beaten into plowshares, even if only in Drainsville, Virginia. Let's pray. Great God, you made peace with this world by suffering and dying for it. Give us the strength and courage to be willing to pay the cost of peace so that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.